Looking for a new source to inspire students, alumni, faculty, staff, administrators, and trustees of Jesuit works? Check out Jesuit Saints and Blesseds Spiritual Profiles, available now at jesuitsources.bc.edu. That's jesuitsources.bc.edu. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Happy Easter, Ashley. Happy Easter. How was this your... time we are actually doing it over drinks. Yes, finally. <laughs> it's been a long Lent, but we are back, uh, which is related to what's on tap this week. Yes, it is our custom here on Jesuitical to have something bubbly on the episode after Easter. Yeah, the bubbles rise. Just like Jesus. Just like Jesus. <laughs> so, happy Easter. He is risen. Cheers. Cheers. How was your Easter, by the way? I believe you uh, doubled up on masses this year. Yes. Um, it was good. I did. I made, I was able to hit Holy Thursday, which is like tied for my favorite mass of the year, along with the Easter vigil. Got to a vigil, um, and then I also went to mass during the day wow. on Easter to overachiever to be able to go with both families. So uh, pretty pretty massed out, uh, but <laughs> Easter is a long season, so um, looking yeah. forward to it. How was your Face Easter? Yourself. Yeah, <laughs> mine was great. I was down with my family in Virginia and had the joy of attending an Easter Sunday mass with a three year old and a one year old. So there's always the, yeah the difference between the vigil and the mass during the day is yeah. whether or not there are babies that are awake there, mm-hmm. um, which is Huge plus for mastering the day. Is oh, that yeah. There are lots of cute babies and cute outfits. There are that. So I only went to one mass, but three different egg hunts with, with my niece. <laughs> a triduum of its own. Yep. I, I did um, receive from the chalice for the first time in over three years. Oh, wow. Uh, which was pretty wild. Um, one place, uh, Holy Thursday was sort of the first time that this parish I went to was reinstituting it, which felt fitting. And, you know, I think they did a really good job of saying like, uh, look, you you aren't getting extra communion by getting the cup, but, you know, we wanted the chance to bring it back under both species. So I was, I partook and was very happy. It, it's been a long time, over three years. Yeah. None of the churches I ever go into Virginia have ever had wine, so I didn't mm. have that opportunity. I had one chance of intinction here in New York, but it's been it's been a long while. Yeah. So, uh, but overall, great, great Easter. Yeah. Um, we got a great episode coming up this week, don't we? Yes, we do. We are talking to the spiritual master, Father Ron Rollheiser. He is a member of the Missionary Oblates of Mary Immaculate and an award-winning author well-known for his writings on spirituality. Ron is an incredible writer and a, and a spiritual master, and we've heard from so many people that you know we've got to have Ron Rollheiser on the podcast. And we were very happy to be able to get the chance to talk to him. Um, the book that we focus a lot on is The Holy Longing, which is a pretty good primer on spirituality. If you have grown up in church, if you are new to spirituality uh, completely, I think it's a, a book that's pretty accessible to all people. So if you're looking to kind of follow along with us. Uh, That's the book we read, but this conversation will still make a ton of sense, even if you haven't read it. And before that, we'll have Signs of the Times, where we talk about the latest developments um, in a story involving the FBI looking into radical traditionalist Catholics. And we talk about the new movie from Hulu called The Pope Answers and our reactions to that. But before we get to all of that, we have a few words from our sponsors this week. So one of the many things that I am embarrassed 
about having not read. And I really wanted the chance to do this in college, and I did in college, and I said I'd you know, get to it later on afterwards, is Dante's Inferno. It's something I feel embarrassed to say on mic because it feels like something that should be you know, in every well-rounded, well-educated Catholics, you know, back pocket. But the fact of the matter is, I have just not ever gotten to it. Have you? Is that was that I've a college thing you read? I read the Paradiso, but not the Inferno, so I skipped to the good part. Well, I've I've done neither. <laughs> um, but you know, it's never too late to get back into learning, and that's why I was so thrilled to find not just an one episode, but a full course on Dante's Inferno on Wondrium. Wondram is a place with thousands of programs on all kinds of different topics that you can get lost in, all educational, and they do such a great job of making learning fun. But the show that I found this week was Storytelling in the Human Condition, which you know, tells uh, really gets into the great books tradition and included in that is um, how we tell stories to make sense of death and suffering in Dante's Inferno is a big one in that. And that's why Wondrium is our favorite educational platform. There is so much to love about it. There are over 8,000 hours of videos. Plus, they are always adding new ones, and they're always ad-free. Yeah, and all their information is vetted, and the professors and experts presenting the programs, they really know their stuff. And so we want you to give yourself a chance to learn about what you love or something maybe that you missed out on in college. So sign up for Wondrium today. And right now, Wondrium is offering our listeners a free month of unlimited access. That's right, a free month. So you can sign up today with our special URL, wondrium.com slash jesuitical. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash jesuitical for a free month of unlimited access. So go check that out today. Zach, one thing we've learned working at America Magazine is that sisters and nuns are the unsung heroes of this church. They are doing incredible work all over this country, at the border, in our schools, and around the world. Yeah, and really, as you mentioned, it is truly unsung work that most people don't know enough about. But our friends at Global Sisters Report are changing that. Global Sisters Report is an independent nonprofit source of news and information about Catholic sisters and the critical issues facing the people they serve. They have reported stories from all over the world and even columns written by sisters. And they have a great new series called Hope Amid Turmoil, Sisters in Conflict Areas. It offers a look at the lives and ministries of women religious serving in dangerous places worldwide. This series will go throughout the year and features stories and columns from Ukraine, Nigeria, Kenya, Sri Lanka, Nicaragua, and more. You can find all of this and more at www.globalsistersreport.org. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. And this week on Monday, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Republican Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio, subpoenaed the FBI for documents related to a memo that leaked earlier this year that characterized traditionalist Catholics as possible domestic threats. Um, and our colleague, Michael Lachlan, reported on, on that original leak, so we thought we'd bring him on to talk about the latest developments. Welcome back to Jesuitical, Mike. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Zach. So I have not been following the story super closely. Could you just briefly describe like what is in that original memo? The original memo came to light in February. It's a memo dated January 23rd. It came from the Richmond field office of the FBI. And it is an analyst memo. So it's written by uh, sometimes agents, sometimes people helping agents uh, to kind of give them a deeper understanding of a particular threat or issue or uh, topic that the FBI is investigating. And in this memo, it appears that whoever drafted it 
was thinking that in some traditionalist Catholic circles, these are groups that might be officially part of the church or maybe are fringe elements of the church, that within these circles, there might be an opportunity for the FBI to develop sources in order to prevent extremist threats. So the federal government thinks that domestic terrorism is a threat in the United States. And this person who wrote the memo thought that there were possible sources in these traditional Catholic circles that could be used to head off those kinds of threats. What evidence did they give for that suspicion? Well, this is sort of the the, <laughs> the problem and the challenge with the memo. Uh, it relied heavily on information from the Southern Poverty Law Center, which has characterized certain right-wing or traditionalist groups within the church as hate groups. Uh, it didn't necessarily rely on information the FBI had collected itself. And that, according to experts that we interviewed for our story, that was the problem with it. It relied too much on secondhand information, and there wasn't a lot of evidence that either a crime was in the works, a crime had taken place, and instead it seemed to paint a uh, small but still pretty substantial uh, part of the church uh, with a broad brush and didn't present any facts to back up those claims. And we've had some essays in America about how Catholic circles and Christian nationalists have, you know, influenced events like January 6th, the riots there. Was there any evidence of like that that was sort of what was driving this? There might be like domestic terrorist threats coming from religious groups? It's unclear. Uh, The memo did cite, it it was somewhat sophisticated in its understanding of the church. It talked about how there's some Catholics who have a more traditional spirituality. Maybe they're attracted to the Latin mass, to a spirituality that was more common before Vatican II. But it said it wasn't necessarily looking into just those beliefs equating with the potential for extremism, but other groups that maybe have followed online figures who profess to be part of these traditionalist groups. Uh, cited Nick Fuentes, who's sort of an online provocateur who regularly talks using anti-Semitic language, um, expressing uh, disdain for uh, the Democratic Party, federal government. So it sort of explored what are the ties between some of the people who share this uh, religious belief or ideology and some of these more extreme online personalities that have uh, engaged in hate speech. Maybe there was a tie between the two. Okay, so this original memo was actually as soon as it came to light publicly, it was it was retracted by the FBI. Um, Christopher Ray, the head of the FBI, said, "quote It does not reflect FBI standards. We do not conduct investigations based on religious affiliation or practices." Full stop. Anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so the memo's been retracted, but now we have this new subpoena coming from House Republicans. Um, so, so what's the reasoning for for digging deeper into the FBI's actions here? Yep. So Representative Jim Jordan, who is the chair of the House Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government, uh, he sent a letter to the head of the FBI, Christopher Wray, and said that he had information that showed that the FBI uh, did rely on undercover, at least one undercover agent who was trying to perhaps infiltrate a Catholic community, one of these traditionalist communities, uh, which goes against the testimony that uh, Christopher Ray and Merrick Garland, uh, the attorney general, had uh, given to the Senate in March. So Jim Jordan is saying that there's evidence now that there was this attempt to infiltrate Catholic communities, even though the FBI has said that they do not do that uh, to religious communities of any kind. So this is sort of a development that has been taken up by Jordan's committee and in the Senate by Senator Josh Hawley, who has been kind of prodding the Senate to take action. Okay, so the idea is that the original memo, what we thought then was like, okay, they were just gathering background information um, to to inform agents. But this new development is that there could be evidence that they, you know, actually had someone attend the Latin mass and and try to develop sources. Yeah, there's a lot of questions. Uh, What 
Jim Jordan released publicly uh, does not really back up his claims that they have proof that there were undercover agents. He's saying that he has access to something that shows there was at least one. But there's a lot more questions than answers at this point. Hmm. So what should we be on the lookout for next in this? Moles in our masses. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the, F- the FBI maintains that it... Uh, did not do the kinds of things that uh, some of its conservative critics are saying when it comes to infiltrating religious communities. The FBI has said it will cooperate with the subpoena that is preparing to send documents over. It's unclear how much is actually there when it comes to these claims by uh, Jim Jordan and others kind of pushing this issue. Uh, but I think we'll have to pay attention to what uh, the committee is able to get from the FBI and then what they're willing to make public. So far, the story has mostly been relegated to more conservative media publications. Uh, but I think there is a growing interest in the Catholic press and the Catholic community about what exactly the FBI thought it was doing with this Richmond memo. All right. All right. Well, as things develop further, we might have to bring you back on, Mike. Thanks for getting us up to date. Yeah, good being here. And what's our next story, Zach? So wanted to talk about a brand new documentary that came out during Holy Week uh, entitled The Pope Answers. So you can find this on Hulu. Um, I was surprised. I mean, I was just busy during Holy Week, I guess, so I didn't get a chance to get around to this. And if I'm watching movies during Holy Week, I'm usually going back to ones that I love. But I really should have worked this thing into the mix because this is a really incredible documentary. What, what So what happens in it? Yeah, so this is an hour and a half documentary in which Pope Francis talks to uh, 10 young people, all between the age of 20 and 25. And, and they're not just Catholics. There are a couple Catholics. There's a Muslim. There's an evangelical Christian. There are atheists, agnostics. Uh, and they're all just having this freewheeling conversation with the Pope. And there's, <laughs> they do not avoid the hot button issues. I mean, they get into racism, migration, abortion, sex abuse, sex and gender, uh, dating apps, even you know Tinder, and, and and more. And I and I can't remember ever seeing anything like this before. Like people have said, you know, Pope Francis is comfortable being in more freewheeling conversations than anything. But I feel like this was taken to like the nth degree. Yeah, no, Pope Francis has been famous for his willingness to give interviews with basically anyone, but. He's talking to members of Gen Z who they don't they don't have any filters. They are fearless when they are talking to the Pope and say things like I would be, you know, a little shy to say about about just the realities of being a young person in the world today. Yeah. And you were, I think, a little rubbed the wrong way with some of that. Uh, We talked a couple of weeks ago about the Pope and the puffer coat and how, you know, would would people feel okay about people kind of not mocking, but using Pope Fran- or using another religious leader in this way. And I felt watching this film that there could be a little bit more respect and decorum for the Holy Father. People are in spaghetti straps and low cut shirts and short shorts. And they're, you know, just with the Pope. Yeah. When I think, I don't know, I found that like so refreshing. And I'm sure that was like, that was part of what they were going for, right? Is they are looking for this totally relaxed, unfiltered conversation. And I, I don't know. I As think, film, it is it is striking. I yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it, and I I just would like encourage everybody to you know take take an hour and a half um, out of your weekly binge schedule um, to to work this into the mix because it's people in your life whether they're still Catholic or not or engaged or not or one foot in or one foot out like I think everybody's going to get something out of this and to see like a respected religious figure learn how to like what's most striking is so like the topic of abortion comes up and they're discussing and all of a sudden like the young people start talking amongst themselves and Pope Francis just like 
you know, takes a step back and listens and lets this conversation develop um, amongst them and kind of knows when it's his turn to speak. And which I found incredible and refreshing. And, you know, he didn't feel the need to kind of jump in and convince them or give them advice or condescend them in any way. Yeah, totally. We've been talking about this awfully named Synod on Synodality for years now. And I feel like this conversation kind of like distilled it into what what we're trying to do yeah. <laughs> in like a real way that doesn't have to use the word synod. It just kind of shows real deep conversation with people who don't necessarily agree with each other. And so, yeah, no, it's it's unique. I have my misgivings with some of it, but I would definitely recommend watching it. Yeah, synodality is a vibe. <laughs> it could have been the subtitle of this film. Um, so we're, we're just you know, introducing you to this because I think we're going to try to do um, a little bit more conversation on it because this really was um, uh, amazing. We've got some pieces up in America this week that we will link to in our show notes that kind of uh, review the film, talk about its major points, but we're going to do something else on the podcast, definitely. So uh, check it out. It's called The Pope Answers, and you can find it on Hulu. And now stick around for our conversation with Father Ron Rollheiser. Joining us from San Antonio is Father Ron Rollheiser. Father Ron is a member of the Missionary Oblates of Mary Immaculate and an award-winning author well-known for his writings and lectures on spirituality. Welcome to Jesuitical, Father Ron. Nice to be with you. It's great to have you. We're so psyched to have the chance to talk to you. Um, Ashley and I, uh, ahead of this, both read The Holy Longing, which is sort of a, a classic in contemporary Christian spirituality. So, But I was nine when it came out, so yeah, we, <laughs> I missed that boat, and yeah. so I'm catching up now. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think a lot of our listeners, um, this is a deeply meaningful book to them and their lives, and so we're excited to get the chance to unpack it with you a little bit. I think one place to start is the book begins with a pretty you know, I would say a broad introduction or universal premise to uh, spirituality before getting into anything sort of hyper specifically Christian. You talk about a longing or an energy that all of us have within us. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, like, how might a young adult in today's world recognize uh, whatever this this thing is? Thank you, Zach. You know, I think that one of the, the tragedies really is that um, so often we, especially young people, have the impression that they're, they're energies. You know, all our energies, which are erotic, sexual, just restlessness, that somehow that sets you against spirituality. And see, the whole thing about the holy longing, that is your spiritual energy. You know, that is your soul. You know, like, for instance, you take the expression soul music. What makes music soul? Well, that means it's, <laughs> it moves your chromosomes. See, so all the, the longing, that's what's called the holy longing, the longing, the restlessness, our sexuality, all of that, that is our spiritual energy. It's not against spirituality, which tragically so many people feel it is. I'm glad you said that because I think like a lot of people set those against each other, right? There is like, yeah. a, they'll call it like new age energy yeah. or it's this interest in like Eastern spiritualities or mindfulness. But you're saying these all kind of come from the same source. Yeah, they come, and you know where they come from? They ultimately come from the image and likeness of God inside of us. That is a fire. That's not an icon. You know, you're born, and you're born restless and full of fire with infinity inside of you. Remember Augustine's famous expression. He says, you've made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless till they rest in you. Um, see, so that 
our erotic energies, they are our soul. <laughs> that is our energy for spirituality. So you have this line that I really loved, that spirituality is more about whether or not we can sleep at night than about whether or not we go to church. And I feel like a lot of people who grow up Catholic think of, or at least this is how I've thought of it, like spirituality is this nice thing you like sprinkle on top of being a good church-going Catholic, not something that everyone has no matter you realize it or not. So if you're, if you're talking to one of our contemporaries who doesn't go to church, how would you convince them that they, they have a spirituality, whether they call it that or not? Spirituality comes from the word spirit. And the word spirit doesn't mean some invisible, you know, floating inside of you. Spirit means energy. And, and your energy is your spirit. What you do with it is your spirituality. So we think of Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa was a very spiritual woman. But in the book, for instance, I'd use different examples now, but I contrasted her to Janis Joplin, the rock star, you know, or today because Amy Winehouse, that was their spiritual life. It's not like Mother Teresa had a spiritual life and they don't, you know. Mother Teresa had this kind of spiritual life. Princess Diana had this kind of spiritual life. But see, what you do with your energy is your spiritual life. For some of us, it takes us to church. For some people, it doesn't take you to church, you know. Um, but I like that line, even if I wrote it. <laughs> it's more, can you sleep at night than are you going to church? Are you yeah. at peace inside of yourself? Um, you know, do you have meaning in your life? Um, that's your spirituality. And these are sort of like eternal questions, right? Another thing yeah. I appreciated is you said that, you know, there was no golden age where some people had this, this figured out. Like everyone has had yeah. to address spiritual yeah. questions in yeah. their own time. Yeah. You know, I'll give you an example, getting back to your question, Ashley. I was once directing a young nun, very bright, very spirited. And at one point she came and said, I'm leaving religious life. I'm also leaving the church. She said, because I'm, I'm too full of energy and fire and eros to be a Christian. No, she couldn't be further wrong. <laughs> see, see, basically, I have too much soul to get involved in soulology. You know, I said, you of all people maybe should be a nun. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, see, but that's our society. We set the two energies against each other. Yeah. And you talk about how um, it's kind of it's how we channel this energy. And there's kind of a spectrum between being depressed where you're not accessing that energy and elation where it's all 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 energy i guess that's the janice droplin yeah. root um so can you can you break that down for us like what does if the poles are depression and elation like how do you integrate those to, and find like the balance that people are looking for that helps them sleep at night <laughs> that's an excellent question um you, you know I, I once went to a psychiatric conference and, and the man speaking said you know he said if you're here and you're over 25 years old, said you probably live with a lot of chronic depression in your life. He said, and that's good. Because most people who don't, he said, you wish they were depressed. He said, they're jerks, you know. Um, so see, um, our energy is a powerful thing. Energy isn't friendly. Energy can keep you awake at night, you know. And it's how we channel it. So we struggle to channel it in such a way that uh, we, we can be, fulfilled and act out and creative, and yet at the same time that we're not inflated, we're not egotistical, we're not, not narcissistic. So um, 
you know, kind of an irreverent thing. Like sometimes I look at great people, Mother Teresa, John Paul II, people like that, and say, did they have a huge ego? And most people would say, right, that absolutely, they have an ego the size of the Grand Canyon. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but the difference is Mother Teresa could walk into any room and say, I'm an important spiritual figure, and she was. But she said, this is me. This is God's energy. <laughs> you know, see, she didn't identify with the energy. Whereas a lot of rock stars or whatever, they're powerful, but they identify with the energy. That energy will destroy you, you know. See that it's it's God's energy inside of us, inside of everything, our eros, our sexuality, and so on. And um, and so we, we can be high performers and even have big egos <laughs> and be humble at the same time. That makes some intuitive sense to me because, and I feel like the Greeks really understood this, the way they talked about like, love or God. It, it's always, it can be like the self-consuming thing that is really dangerous yeah. and will it hurt you and those around you. But on the other hand, it, I, rightly so, I think we're taught to say that like all, like all of that comes from God and God doesn't hurt. He just loves. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I'm struggling to reconcile those two beliefs, I guess. First of all, God is love. And so there isn't a single thing anybody can do ever for one second to make God love you less. Of course, you can't do a single thing to make God love you more either. You know, as Jesus said, this, God is like the sun. The sun shines on vegetables, weeds alike, so that God loves us, you know. But see the energy sack we have inside of us. That's godly energy. And God wants us to thrive and be happy and to act out on this, but at the same time, not to identify with the energy. I'll say, but this is me. This is gift. This is God. You know, and that's what separates a great person, a Mother Teresa, from a great egotist. They both do great things, but one of them does it. This is God working through humble me, or this I am Mr. Everything here, you know. Um, but that's a struggle. I said it with sympathy. That's a great struggle. And most sensitive people, you're sensitive people, most sensitive people, we'd sooner be depressed than be a jerk. You know, so, so we often don't do the great things we need to do because we're so afraid of somebody saying about you, who do you think you are? Or he thinks he's some big shot or something. Um, see, we're so afraid of that that we'd sooner tone our energies down, um, sooner eat our own energy than to be seen as inflated and acting out. Hmm. So, so you say we've been talking about the energy and the vitality that is is good if you if channeled the right way. Um, but you have this other line that a healthy soul keeps us both energized and glued together. So so that energy can also lead to like disintegration and being all over the place. Like what's what's the glue if the energy is working against order? Like what in spirituality or Christianity would you say keeps a soul glued together? Okay. Excellent question, but I'm going to get theoretical for just a minute here. You know, from Aristotle through the great philosophers, they always said the soul is a double principle. Your soul is your principle of energy, and your soul is your principle of integration. So the, the, your soul is the fire, and your soul is the glue, and you can lose your soul in different ways. You know what Jesus says? What does it profit somebody to gain the whole world and suffer the loss of your own soul? Okay, he's not saying what does it profit you if you do all this stuff and go to hell. How can you lose your soul? Well, you can lose your soul in two ways. One way is this way. You can um, 
petrify or ossify, where basically if I get up some morning, I'm angry at the whole world. I'm angry at myself, you know, and I'm just have this bitter coldness. That's the loss of soul. Okay. I am solidly glued together, but I'm too glued together. Or vice versa, you can lose your soul by dissipation. You know, and sometimes with young people, that's a that's a struggle. You know, you're you just let your energies flow out, and after a while, you're looking in the mirror and say, "Who am I? I don't even recognize myself." You know, see, I'm I'm becoming unglued. I'm falling apart. See, so a healthy soul keeps you on fire. You're on fire. You have energy, and it it keeps you glued together. You're not looking in the mirror and saying, "Who am I?" And you know, I was once this kid from a farm in Iowa. Now I don't know who I am anymore. You know, like Janis Joplin, the rock star, she created all this energy, but at a certain point she just died, you know, or if you saw the movie Elvis, that's a perfect example. Elvis was a wonderful man, moral and so on. But at a certain point, he just fell apart. Um, he performed, he couldn't eat anymore. He couldn't sleep. He had to take drugs to sleep and drugs to get up and so on. Um, he wasn't a bad man, but at a certain point he fell apart. And see, that's the opposite of somebody who doesn't fall apart, but they're so bitter that they haven't got a friend in the world. You know, you talking about ways to stay glued together and stay spiritual. You're, you're writing in 1999, but you, you diagnose some pretty significant barriers to having a spiritual life that I think are more true than ever. But I did laugh. There was one thing you, you said that uh, in the book. It's, we're more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual. More interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. And I was reading that, and I was like, if only people still went to the movie theaters or the sports stadiums or shopping malls, if only we were together in community like that, like we were in the 90s, you know, and what we've seen after the pandemic is people are just... They just stream everything. They spend a ton of time on their couch. They are hanging out with friends less. Um, they're having less sex. In some ways, we've just sort of resort, like, I don't know, become totally insular. And that's like spiraling into a number of crises, either a mental health crisis or a friendship crisis or a loneliness crisis. I'm wondering if you feel like your outlook on that has changed at all um, since writing the book. And the, now we all have these like supercomputers that we carry around with us all the time. Yes, Zach, very much. Life has changed. That, see that? 1999, that's what? That's 25 years ago almost and so on. Don't say uh, that. Oh, my God. But, <laughs> but, but, but since then, you know, it's not just the COVID. COVID was, it, it catalyzed rather than caused. Yeah. But it, it's basically social media, social streaming, um, where, and I see that as dangerous, more dangerous than people not going to church more dangerous that we're isolated, we're alone. Um, and, um, and, and that's, for instance, where you get that famous expression, I'm spiritual but not religious, which means I'm going to do God and community on my own terms. And that's dangerous, not just religiously, but humanly. You know, we are constitutively social. That means you're meant to be with other people. And that's not even yet getting to Christianity where we're, we're called to come to God in a community, you know. But, but you're pointing out that's a human danger, not just a spiritual danger of the aloneness. You know, um, you know. for instance, when I, I was a kid, you didn't have a TV in every room. There was one TV in the house. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so if you may be watching television, but you were together, you know, 
now there's, there's a, a streaming device in everybody's hand and um, we're becoming dangerously individualistic. You know, not, not just young people, everybody. So it's not just church that's at issue here. It's community, community. I want to pick up on the like individualism, narcissism thing, because I think that's a very unpopular diagnosis in some ways, because most of our generation is taught to do things like, you know, believe in yourself, follow your passions, do your own thing. And we've sort of like spent a while building up self-worth in a generation. And in a certain like, I think that's all been good. But I feel like because of that, no one is ready to hear that, you know, you're you're being selfish right now, or I'm being selfish right now when I do any of the number of things that, that you rattle off there. Is that new or do you see a way out of it? No, I'm not saying we're selfish. I'm not making a moral judgment. I'm making a human judgment. So give me a, a let me give you a picture. I see it all the time. You're in a restaurant and you see a family in there, five of them, and everyone is looking at their own screen. It's because the menu's on a QR code and we have to scan no, it. No, 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 you're, you're catching, you're giving a break. They've long since scanned the menu, you know. They're together, but they're not together, you know. And that isn't so much a question of selfishness. That's a question of just distraction, my own world. Um, and let me say something about narcissism. I, I have a sympathy for narcissism for the very fact that God built us that way. <laughs> Robert Moore was one of my professors. He used to say, you know, why do you feel like you're the center of the earth? Because you are, <laughs> every one of us, you know. Uh, remember the famous line from Rene Descartes, Rene Descartes, the, you know, who began the whole individualistic thing in the West. He said, what's the only thing you know for sure? The only thing you'd be sure of? And he said, I think, therefore I am. So okay, your, your reality is real to you, and you may be dreaming everything else. We're not bad. You know, it's not that we're selfish, narcissistic people. I see a lot of wonderful generosity and stuff, um, which teaches me as a priest. I, I learn a lot of my lessons, not from the Bible church, from, from watching people and young people and some of their challenges and so on. But I feel for them um, that, that, that community and family um, are in danger. Let, let me give you another example. If you look at an immigrant community today where they're first-generation immigrants and you still see how close the family is and what family means to them, you remove it two generations and everybody's on their own. You know, we have a wonderful sociology of religion in Canada, Reginald Bibby, and he always says, notice that people treat their churches in exactly the same way as they're treating your families. That's an interesting way. Yeah. You know, which means we don't want you to disappear well, we don't want you around a lot. <laughs> and, and we want you around when we need you, you know. That's such an insight. He said, wow. people are treating their churches the same way as they're treating their families. So yeah. they're not hostile to churches, but I have a life going here. And, mm -hmm. um, and I'll call you when I need you. Yeah. And you have another metaphor in your book where you kind of describe us modern people as the, like, child of divorce in terms of the pre-modern world where we had religion and it told us what to do and that came with strictures and taboos uh, but kind of kept us you know in line and then modern culture where it's you know you be you you're free self-actualize um and so it does seem like there is as you said the you're the child of divorce caught between these two things so there is something in us that is reacting against this complete freedom we've 
been given. Like, where does where does that instinct come from? And as a child of divorce, I side with whoever's going to buy me <laughs> yeah. the Xbox. By yeah. the way, our our own. You know, let me give you an analogy. You know, the same way as your body has an immune system, your body has an immune system which always wants to bring you back to health. There's cancerous cells; it tries to kill them, and so on. Sometimes it gets overwhelmed by them, but your psyche does too. You know, your soul. Your soul is meant for your health. And so when we stray, you start feeling it. You know, the, you have a, a soul immune system. It cuts in <laughs> and, and it says, this isn't good. And, it, and, and, and that takes different expressions. You know, one of the expressions it takes is depression, melancholy. Other times it takes the, the expression of self-hatred. See, th those, are, those can be very healthy psychological signs. Like, you know, the ancients used to say melancholy is that's a deep, thing you know why am i sad when well, your soul is telling you something you know or why do i suddenly hate myself your soul is speaking to you you know see so your soul's immune system that's why i have hope for the future you know, we're not going to go wild and so on because we're human we're built for health and we're built for community and eventually it, it, you, you get a reaction that said i i our society feels very unhealthy right <laughs> like like the amount of people who are depressed, lonely, as Zach had said, like committing suicide, deaths of despair, like it seems pretty bleak right now, which in a way made me very like when you your book starts with a pretty like uh, stark description of the human condition as <laughs> depressed and that that longing is always there. You're never even when you're happy, you know, something's missing. So maybe it's a eternal thing. But it seems like our we're like in a. We're in a mental health crisis. Do you also see it as a spiritual crisis? And is it a new one or is it the one humanity has had forever? It's the one humanity has had forever, except it always takes on different forms and modalities. It's taken on the modality of today's world. But I think one of the things that feeds into it today is isolation. Like, you know, I've written a book on suicide. But one of the things that, that feeds suicide today is isolation. We don't have strong community, family things holding us, you know. Another one is, <laughs> it's going to sound superficial, but it's not. It's also the way our society is dangling an, an image of happiness that doesn't exist. You know, like we're being tortured by concepts of happiness. That somewhere out there, people have found it, it's wonderful, and you're the only person missing out. So, for instance, Ashley, I'll ask you this question. Somebody comes to you and says, Ashley, are you happy in your life? Is that a good question? No. <laughs> no, I'll tell you, it isn't. You know, it's a question to torture yourself with. Yeah. You'll start thinking, well, maybe I'm not that happy and so on. It's the wrong question. Mm. You know, imagine if somebody came up to Jesus on the cross and said, are you happy up there? <laughs> He'd say no. And today I'm particularly unhappy. If somebody comes up to you and says, Ashley, is there meaning in your life? I say, yeah, there's meaning. And some days I'm happy and some days I'm not happy and so on. It comes and goes. See, happiness, our society defines it, it's ephemeral. It comes and it goes. Meaning is abiding, you know. And see, today I think we have meaning and happiness mixed up. And, and, uh, and, and when I say we're never going to be fully happy, you know, that's Augustine's thing. You can have a deeply meaningful, generative, and in many ways happy life where there's deep periods of, you know, there's sadness and grief and depressions. It's part of life. 
you know, Carl Rahner is one of my mentors. Carl Rahner says great line. He says, in this life, all symphonies remain unfinished. Nobody gets the finished symphony, you know. And once we accept that, a happiness comes with it. You don't have to torture yourself anymore and say, like, you know, why am I not fulfilled? Ron, you don't strike me as someone who is allergic to science or psychology or psychiatry. And so I want to just ask you, what's, what's your take on like a lot of the things we're talking about? Some people listening to this are going to say like, oh, those are medical issues. Those are scientific problems. Those, are not, those don't need to be spiritualized. I'm curious how you respond to that. No, Zach, it's all of a piece. <laughs> it's all one piece. Everything that's human is spiritual. Everything that's scientific, if it's valid, it's human. Anything that's true is part of the equation. You know, whether it comes from science or psychiatry or, in fact, I wish I had a lot more time to study science and psychiatry and uh, anything that's true is good and, and it's needed. Otherwise, we end up bipolar somehow inside of ourselves, you know, and scared of different, you know, scared to look at science or scared to look at psychiatry or scared to look at this or in the vice versa. Some people are scared to look at religion. They're scared to look at spirituality. Um, nothing should scare us. Yeah, I guess where where we get in the trouble is when people try to like pray away problems, and that's as if as if that's the only solution. But I do think a lot of young people sort of like the only thing the secular world offers them is a solution to these feelings of like disintegration or lack of meaning. Is oh well, are you seeing a therapist? And that's like sort of the baseline advice. And like, look, therapy's good, and you know people should see it. But I do feel like you know I know this exists, but it's hard to find both someone that who is open to therapy and willing to discuss like spiritual problems. Is there something behind sort of the the shying away of or, or sort of the default reaction? It's like, oh, well, are you talking to someone? It's the same thing. Like, uh, for instance, I, I teach a course where I make a distinction between spiritual direction and counseling, and how they run into each other. We, we need counselors, we need therapists, we need spiritual directors, you know, um, and, and they don't, they never oppose each other unless they're doing their job wrong. You know, if, if I'm a good counselor, a good therapist, a good psychiatrist, a good medical person, I'm for people's health and it's helping the same as if I'm a good spiritual director, if I'm a good priest or sacramental ministry, it all fits together. There are no contradictions here and we shouldn't be afraid of any part of that equation. Are you a person in your 20s or 30s who is looking to deepen your faith, grow as a leader, explore your vocation, all while being a part of a welcoming, inclusive community of your peers? You might consider becoming a Contemplative Leader in Action, or CLA. This is an Ignatian leadership program for young adults sponsored by the Office of Ignatian Spirituality and Ignatian Young Adult Ministries. Ignatian leadership invites us to act in a way that reflects our beliefs, affirms our purpose, and promotes justice. CLA is an 18-month program with cohorts that gather twice per month to explore themes like relational leadership, leading in complexity, and accountable leadership. The experience begins and ends with a retreat with days of reflection along the way. New cohorts are forming now. Be a contemplative leader in action. Apply today at contemplativeleaders.org. The application deadline is May 1st, 2023. 
You know, I was talking to a group of college students a couple weeks ago and realizing that I'm like now <laughs> more than a decade older than college students. So they seemed very young to me. And um, I was asked the question, you know, as as a young adult Catholic, like what what breaks your heart about the church right now? And my answer was like when I read about the mental health crisis that young people are going through right now, it's not that like they were in the church and decided to, that it wasn't helping them. Like they never had the church. They never had religion and the value that at least I personally found in religion when navigating my own mental health issues. Like they just never had it. Why weren't we there for those people? Like what what did the church do wrong that like we were never even in their minds as an option of navigating life's hardships and challenges? Well, not an easy question, but, and again, I'm going to take a theoretical answer. You know, I mean, I've probably been to 50 conferences in the last 10 years to try to answer that question. You know, so you, well, so you should have a pretty, you should have the perfect answer. Then, yes. <laughs> that's no, so I, that's why I don't have an answer. Like if we had an answer, like, like why do we have a generation now and probably two generations where this isn't really on their, on their, uh, their vision, you know? I'm going to answer theoretically. Are you familiar with Charles Taylor, the great Canadian philosopher who wrote this yeah. book on a secular age? You know, it's a pretty massive book. It's on yeah. my bookshelf. It remains un uncracked it's, though. It's 873 pages yep. of small print. Okay, very small print. Okay, but Taylor says this. Taylor says what's happened is the conditions for faith have changed, and he said our problem is not so much faith as it is a problem of imagination. And I want to give you an example. Uh, Tom Groom, who teaches in Boston College, uses this example explaining Taylor, a very simple example. Tom Groom said he grew up in rural Ireland. He said, big family outside of town, they had no telephone. They had a car, but he's, on this particular week, his dad was gone at some meetings. He's 10 years old and he has pneumonia and his fever spikes to 104. He said, my mother, she didn't know what to do. She couldn't phone anybody. She had no car. She couldn't walk to the neighbors. Said So she pinned a medal of trees of Lisieux in my pajamas and just knelt down and said, we're going to say rosaries till this fever breaks. And they prayed rosary after rosary. They both fell asleep, and eventually the fever broke. Now, the point Tom is making is not that there was a miracle. The point was this, that today, young people, they wouldn't dream of that because they wouldn't have to, you know. They have cell phones and ambulances and so on. See, so said the conditions of faith have changed so radically, you know, or, or, or look at my own life. I grew up in an immigrant area where on Sunday morning, you had to be a deviant to not go to church. If you didn't go to church, you were noticed that you weren't there. My nephews and nieces live in a world where they have to be a deviant to go to church. You know, young people today, they're pioneers in the, in the area of faith. No people in history in the 2,000 years of Christianity have lived the lives that they're living. You know, and the church has to have a new imagination to reach out. Can I push you on some practical things that would would require a, a new imagination? So d does the church need to change it all to facilitate that? Yes. I mean, and we may have to ask radical questions. Like, for instance, the Roman Catholic Church for the last some centuries we work on the paradigm of the parish. You know, everything works through the parish and what doesn't work through the parish. You have a couple of retreat houses and you know, 
Jesuit magazines called America and so on. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but, you know, 98% of church life works through the parish. But, you know, the parish structure is predicated on a certain neighborhood and community that's broken down. Do we have to look at parish structure? Do we have a look at maybe a, a whole different way of structuring? Because parishes have lost the last generation and a half. By and large. You are singing Zach's tune. Yeah. He has a crusade against parishes. Against the parish model and the structure. Yeah. I just think it's, I, I, in, we keep trying to do the, the wrong thing writer, it seems yeah. to me. With, <laughs> I like that expression. Do with, the wrong thing writer. Like we keep trying okay. to I, like just really like make parishes work. And in some ways I'm, I'm you know, I just ask if fundamentally it's sort of broken for, for modern people. Yeah. Or do we have to go back to house churches all kinds of things. But what we need to look at that, I think that, for instance, that, that's one of the big pieces, is the parish model, which worked for these hundreds of years, is it not functioning anymore? You know, um, And then where do we go? You know, There's a, a theologian in Quebec who, who wrote an article some years ago where he called, maybe we should have a, a deal of houses where you have you know, houses of hospitality, houses of sacraments, spiritual houses like Jesuit retreat centers and so on. And that, that wouldn't work on a parish model, you know, or, or a, ver- a very simple thing. You know, what, what works in Ireland and England? Every parish has a pub. <laughs> <laughs> now no, you're talking no, my language. <laughs> no, and, and, and that works, you know. It draws people together. Yeah. But so you do, one fear I have in moving in that direction is that it it kind of mirrors like, modernity where you can pick and choose what you want and you don't have to run in people that might annoy you or challenge you or you disagree with. So how do you maintain that um, the part of community that's hard, which is bumping up against people who you don't like? (laughs) Yeah. Well, that, that's an important thing. I think since they don't come to parishes as not being addressed, we have to try to address that morally and in teaching and so on, we have to convince people of the importance and non-negotiability of, of their community aspect, their communitarianness. So it's not going to happen in the parish if they're not coming, you know? Like I like I, my always counter to that is that happens more on the New York City subway for me than it does in my parish, yeah. <laughs> uh, you, yeah. you know? But to think that like, for, I've never really understood that because like if anyone, anyone who works a job or has a family or and you know, as more people work from home, as more people move further away from their families, this is happening in fewer and fewer places. But the the thought that like the parish is somehow the last standing place where you run into but it is a place ideas. where you are being told directly like you are all a part of the body of Christ and you have yeah. to love each other. Whether you like, no job is telling their employees. That. I think there's a subway ad that says, <laughs> yeah. but but you know what? What the parish has and has to be saved, and that is the sacraments. Yeah, the sacraments are key. That's the great treasure. I'll give you an example, and this comes from Rick Warren, the Saddleback Church guy. He's a great friend with us Catholics and so on. And, and Rick Warren said he gets a lot of Catholics who come to his uh, Saddleback Church, mega church. This is like a mega church, yeah. He said, because they want preaching. He said, but you know, he said a lot of them stay for a while and they say, I want the sacraments again. <laughs> see, see, so, you know, Catholicism, preaching has not been our strength and isn't our strength. You know, sacraments are, you know. See, so if, like Rootsy would say, you still have to have houses of sacraments where you can go. Um, the sacramental life's very important. But lately, it's become everything. <laughs> you know, it, and then also just even the role of a priest. Today, you ordain a priest, you put him in an impossible situation. 
know, he's got to be all things to all people. He can't do it. And we don't let anybody else minister by and large, you know. And so we need to rethink ministry. We need to rethink parish structures and so on. Uh, because I fear if we don't, it's just going to get less and less. Yeah. So to do a pretty large pivot, but something you mentioned at the beginning about spirituality is that sex is at the heart of it. You just give the, you know, the origin of the Latin word for sex and it's like separated from. And so this idea that our sexuality is not just like whether we like men or women or um, who we sleep with. It's this like longing to be whole in a way that we don't quite understand where we got separated. <laughs> that was my <laughs> pretty bad description of what you described in your in your book. But so but why do you say that sexuality is at the heart of spirituality? Because it's so tied in with our, with our energies. You know, from the time you are particularly at puberty, your sexuality prior to puberty is kind of there, but not constellated. From puberty till you die, it's a major player. And, and no amount of denial by churches or is going to take that away. And in fact, it's one of the big obstacles. I think so many young people just feel that the church doesn't get sex. And, yeah. I um, mean, well, if you look at the past synods, like the synod on the family, it came down to a question of divorce and remarried Catholics. Like the synod on now that on synodality is coming down to LGBT Catholics, women, and like so. It, it seems like we keep coming back to sex and gender, and people telling the church that you don't get it. Well, okay, I'm gonna. I can speak as a priest. Yeah, and I'm a celibate priest. I've made a vow of celibacy, and I respect what churches. But but so I can say this. The church has, not, not just the Roman Catholic Church, the church has never got sex at all. Um, so how you know, can that be and that sex is at the heart of spirituality? Well, that's one of our big problems. You know, <laughs> see, see, we've always had sexuality somehow separated. So, so I'll give you an example. We've never had a robust theology and spirituality of sex. We haven't. And that, that's also true for other churches. And it's also true for the world. I'll give you a simple example, and I don't want to be cynical, but for instance, in the Roman Catholic Church, who gets canonized? Celibates or martyrs. You know, so, I mean, I have a shot at this, and you do it, you don't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, like, unless you get yourself martyred, but it says yeah. something, you know, basically um, that sex is somehow, where in fact, biblically, it's completely wrong. Biblically, marriage is the normative pattern, you know, male and female you know, right from Genesis on, you know, celibates, we're the, we're the weird ones, the odd ones, you know, um, but, but we haven't developed that. We're working towards it, but I only take consolation the fact that nowhere in the world do I see a healthy theology of sexuality. You know, yeah. I don't see it in, in the communist world, in the postmodern world, evangelical or Protestant churches have their own struggles, you know, that, and that ties into gender and gender equality. It's a place where we limp. But I think we have to start by admitting we're limping there. Are there are there some things that the church could actually teach the world about sexuality? Do you think? Yes. <laughs> First of all, it it should teach the world that sexuality is a great gift from God, and it's meant to be enjoyed, and it's also very important. It's the reason all three of us exist on this planet. You know, that the first thing that that this is not something that sets you against. Then the churches also have to teach what they've been trying to teach, sometimes badly, that that sexuality is also a, a powerful force that needs a lot of um, a, a lot of chastity surrounding it. Otherwise, it becomes very destructive. But let me put something simplistically. 
conservatives are too afraid of sex and liberals are too unafraid of it. You know, I've heard liberal speakers, I met a speaker in our auditorium, this woman says, why is the church so afraid of sex? Who's ever been hurt by it anyway? I thought, <laughs> whoa, like just murders and suicides and breakdowns and so on, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that's a naivety in our culture, you know, that you know, sex has to do with soul. It's deep, it's powerful, it's divine, it's wonderful, and it needs protection. Yeah, and so if sex has to do with soul, that gets it close to what I think what most people consider the Catholic teaching on sex to be is like it's a, it's a realm of sin. <laughs> yeah, and 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 part of that is because it because it is so close to the soul that you need to protect it, and so you have to have prohibitions. But I think that at least for people of my generation, that is the only thing they think about what the church yeah. says. Yeah, and so do you think? This, as I mentioned before, we're having the synod, and these issues are coming up. Uh, recently, Cardinal Robert McElroy, uh, we spoke to him on the show, and he talks about how the church needs to change how it talks about sin and sex. Do you do you think that's right? Or because part no. of me is like I I do see how like the sexual revolution and hookup culture have hurt me and my friends in terms of having healthy sexual lives and relationships. And so part of me wants to hold on to those rules and just be like, no, secular world, listen to the church. They have it figured out. But then there are people who are hurt by these rules. So wh where do you fall down on that? On this, you know, the church has been good about protecting chastity and it hasn't understood sex. And the world has gets sex and it doesn't understand chastity. We need them both. You know, we need a, a robust, healthy, free theology of sexuality. At the same time, we need more than ever in a culture of me too and everything else, we need a strong spirituality of chastity. I'm writing a book right now on chastity and um, trying to disguise the title so that anybody won't, you know. <laughs> it, it, it's so important, you know. You know, bluntly put, the Me Too movement highlights the importance of chastity, among other things. Mm -hmm. You know, it basically, like, you know, uh, sexuality, there has to be a, a respect and a, a wholeness there that isn't there, you know, in a hookup culture and so on. No, I think the world is sort of primed for at least a reevaluation of the rules um, because of that, yeah. right? Like, they've, they've accepted that there is at least one rule, right, where consent, and that's got to be... Yeah. That's got to be there no matter what. And so I think it is sort of like this, I don't know, you could either be hopeful or despairing about it, where people are open to hearing new ideas around sex, but the church has gotten it bad for so long that that's like the last place they want to look for it. Yeah, um, yeah. I think this um, maybe the sexy longing is the title of the new book. <laughs> if you put it on the, if you put it in the, if you put the word sex in the title, it's going to sell. So <laughs> before we let you go, I do want to ask, um, because I think one of the lovely things about you is that you've sort of been able to speak both um, across Christian denominations, um, interreligiously, um, um, between conservatives and liberals, you kind of find a way to talk to both audiences. Why do you, why do you think, maybe just focusing on the ecumenical question first, um, why do so many Protestants and Catholics alike find value in your work? Well, I, you know, it's interesting. I grew up a very conservative Catholic. You know, when I was a little boy being catechized, I was taught only Roman Catholics were going to, to, to heaven, you know. Um, but I've been very, very lucky. The theologians I've studied, the people I've been with, and it's, it's um, um, and I consider the great grace 
basically you have to have a lot of people in your life. So like right now, I have close friends who are Muslims, who are evangelicals, who are Protestants, who are Presbyterians. Um, lately, I get as many invitations to speak in non-Catholic places as in Catholic places. And uh, you just see that we're all searching for the same, the same thing. We're all worshiping the same God. Uh, and we need to befriend each other rather than fight each other. And the same with liberal conservatives. A sincere liberal and a sincere conservative want the same thing. We need to befriend each other. You know, we, we need to, uh, rather than fight each other. But you live in the United States today or the Western world, you know, just how polarized everything is. It's just, it, there's absolutely nothing that isn't polarized, you know? Yeah. So you've stopped leading with only Catholics go to heaven when you go speak? <laughs> well, one, one of the one of the wake up things, uh, Zach, was when I found that the evangelicals weren't going to let, let us in. <laughs> oh yeah, they're in charge. Yeah, <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. We were the Antichrist. So I thought, whoa, you know, and so uh, that's where I think the Simpsons have it right. There's Protestant heaven and ca Catholic. Heaven, so. <laughs> but can I just so we do need to wrap up soon? I know, but one of the things that I really loved about your conception of spirituality is this idea that you say that one of the pillars is mellowness, which yeah. I, I would describe a bit more as like joyousness. So so can you talk about like why you think in the midst of all these challenges we're facing like an essential <laughs> part of being spiritually mature, being a Catholic is is like this mellowness that you coined? Excellent question. <clears throat> I can answer it with, with a biblical parable. The parable of the prodigal son and the older brother. Notice the older brother, he's done everything right. He stayed home, he's never committed a sin, but he's too bitter to go into the house. The house is heaven. You know, see, so that was T.S. Eliot, the, the British poet, who said, the last temptation that's the greatest treason is to do the right thing for the wrong reason. You know, I can do everything right but with the wrong fuel. And so I'm going to ask you this. Who would you sooner have for a neighbor? Some militant, angry, hateful Christian or some new age person who's putting rainbows on your door? <laughs> the latter. And yeah. I, yeah. And yeah, I, yeah. I mean, like, like, who's closer to God in a way? I mean, I, I can do all things right. Like when I have the four pillars, I'm giving to the poor, I'm going to church, I'm doing all this stuff. And I'm a bitter, angry person. Well, a T.S. Eliot, doing all the right things for the wrong reason, you know, so that I, I would sooner have the, the Unitarian, you know, nice person next door than the bitter, angry Christian. No, and I think that, you know, resonated with Ashley and I so much because, you know, part of the conceit of the show is to you know, create a mellow environment where we, you know, we have a cocktail and we're, we're legitimately friends and we're, we're able to talk about spirituality or religion or what's happening in the world, hopefully, hopefully without uh, too much mellowness, but certainly with a good dose of it. Yeah. Um, Ron, thank you so much for all you've done for uh, the world, the church. Um, but in the last 45 minutes that we've had you on this podcast for, for Ashley and I and our listeners. Um, and before we let you go, we do have one final question that we ask all of our guests, which is if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a, <laughs> a real person here. I'd like to canonize Henry Nouwen. All right. You know, you know for all the, the spiritual writings and, 
and his earthiness and all he shared of himself and sharing his struggles with the world, he gives the rest of us some hope. And who was he for listeners that aren't familiar? Uh, Henry Nouwen was a, a spiritual writer and he died in Toronto in 1996, but he wrote about 70 books. He taught at Yale, taught at Harvard, um, and ended up dying in, inside of the Larsh community. Just pick up any book by him. He was kind of the redefined a genre of spirituality for us. You know, it's interesting to tell you a story. You know, I belong to the Henry Nouwen Society, and they met here in San Antonio a couple of weeks ago. And uh, so our board met, and we were at a retreat center. But on the Saturday night, there was a, a group of young people, 19, 20-year-old university students and so on. And, um, and so we were just talking. I wonder if they ever knew him. And so one of our, the women in our group who has some nerve, she stood on the table. She shouted to these young people, said, who has ever heard of Henry Nowen? And at least a third of the hands went up. Really? And, um, That's great. I think there's at least a third listening to this podcast. I, that's a really good answer, except we did forget to mention our one rule, which is no Canadians. <laughs> so no, he was, no he, he was Dutch. He was oh, Dutch. okay, good. Then he's safe then. All right, <laughs> good. Okay. okay. Awesome. Uh, Ron, thanks so much for joining the show. We really appreciate it. Anything you want to plug other than um, the next book on, on sex and chastity? Well, I want to plug American Magazine. You know, um, oh, that's I have two magazines that go across my desk and I read. One is American, one's Commonweal, and I don't get a chance to read a lot of stuff, but you're good. You're All good. Right. That's, take that. that's a ringing endorsement. We really appreciate <laughs> okay. it. All right. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. I would never Now it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. What we got this week, Ashley? First, we want to give a big thank you to our newest member of the Patreon community, Rick Davenport. Thank you so much for your support for Jesuitical and to everyone who supports us through Patreon. If you want to join that community, you can go to patreon.com slash americamedia. And we also want to uh, call attention to the winner of our Jesuitical March Madness Saintly Championship. So for those of you who weren't following along, uh, two incredible listeners, Jeff Johnson and Chris Kinkor, organized a uh, a bracket, so to speak, of people who have been canonized by guests on this show before, which was a ton of fun. So they were posting matchups on our face- in our Facebook group Um Throughout the uh, end of March and into April, um, Dorothy Day against Helen Prejean, Thomas Merton against Richard Rohr, uh, Gandhi versus Fred Rogers. Um, These are tough. (laughs) Yeah, there were some really, there were some nail biters. Uh, (laughs) I think Flannery O'Connor and C.S. Lewis really came down to the wire. Um, uh, But the final four was Fred Rogers, C.S. Lewis, Dorothy Day, and Pope Francis. Um, Fred Rogers nudged out C.S. Lewis to make it to the final, and Pope Francis beat Dorothy Day. And the winner was Pope Francis, which... (laughs) It's a good answer. Um, however, I think some people found it a little predictable. Yeah. However, you know, it did, the voting was happening as the Pope was in the hospital and coming out of the hospital. Uh, yeah. So I'm not sure that Fred Rogers really even stood a chance. Um, so worthy candidate. Uh, so congratulations to Pope Francis and thanks again to Jeff and Chris for organizing it. It was a ton of fun. So if you want to look at the results, you can check them out at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. 
And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. What do we got, Zach? So I wanted to talk about something that someone in our Facebook group mentioned, but also I was thinking about during Easter. I leaned over during Mass during the day um, when the gospel's read, and it's uh, from John's gospel. It's the resurrection account. And it starts with Mary going to the tomb, finding it empty, goes back, tells uh, Peter and the beloved disciple, and they run, and then they see the tomb empty, and they don't understand what happened. And the gospel kind of cuts off there. Which is super annoying because my favorite resurrection story, and I think one of the more powerful ones, and you know, again, one where it's like him, uh, Jesus revealing himself to Mary Magdalene, is right. What's next? Like in the gospel reading, it's like, oh, they went away because they didn't understand, but Mary Magdalene stayed. Is the next line, and for some reason, that's where we've decided to cut it off. And it's just, you know, if you don't know the story, um, Mary's outside the tomb weeping. They don't. She doesn't know where they taken Jesus. She sees Jesus, but she thinks he's the gardener. And then he says her name. And that's when she recognizes him. And it's this beautiful, touching encounter. And for some reason, we've relegated it to a daily mass. I think it's Tuesday's gospel reading instead of including it as like a longer form option for the main day where everybody's going to church. I have to say, I didn't, this didn't really strike me until you came to me (laughs) very upset (laughs) about um, this slight to Mary Magdalene. Um, but but once you said it, I I my main reaction was like ah what like what a missed opportunity because as you said this this mass is if anyone if you're going to one mass every year or two it's Christmas and Easter so we we have a packed church um, like we don't usually have and to have a story that doesn't end with you know the disciples like confused and running away but with woman like this woman who had strong faith and meets her Lord in this like joyous reunion you know. I, I think people would like that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, if you'd been to any of the masses the three days prior, we've not shown uh, an aversion towards long gospel readings. No. <laughs> right. So I don't know why all of a sudden this is the day where we feel like we need to have a short one. And I don't I and I don't want to presume malice or ill intent on the behalf. I actually have no idea how any of this gets really decided, but it feels like a pretty obvious layup for me to kind of include that. I don't know. So th- I'm, I'm upset about it. But, and then it's like, okay, what am I doing with that? And so we were talking to Eric about it. And it's like, um, all right, there, there thing, there's like one reality, which is like, uh, I'm upset because I feel like it's an injustice to Mary Magdalene's experience. And that's just a long list of injustices that Mary Magdalene has experienced. Then I'm like theologically like, oh man, people are missing out on what could be the my favorite gospel reading, the best gospel reading. Um, and I'm dealing with that. And also like recognizing that like there there is more to the resurrection. There are multiple accounts of the resurrection for a reason. And it's like Easter is a long season and it's meant to be like relived, um, you know, over and over and over again until it finally makes sense, which is why we're drinking champagne today to help <laughs> celebrate the Easter season. Um, and so I'm sort of dealing with all of those things and trying not to get in my own head about like, oh, if only I could, you know, somehow call someone up at the bishop's liturgy office and get them to add this reading. Yeah, um, all, all of your friends who have left the church would come. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> flying back not, to the pews. <laughs> which is just not real or true. That's that's kind of where I'm at this week. And Eric encouraged me to leave off with like, you know, uh, what is the what is the resurrection supposed to be doing in my life this Easter season? And what are the accounts that I'm being drawn to? And uh, what are the ways that I can revisit them and relive them throughout this 50-day season, which is longer than the 40-day yeah. season of Lent? Yeah, we don't have to rush all the stories into into one mass. <laughs> but I think this would be a good good option. <laughs> if someone's asking my opinion, I ha- that's it. 
So uh, that's all I got this week. So listeners, I guess I'll encourage you to um, maybe like take a look at all the different gospel accounts of the resurrection and see if there are any that are particularly speaking to you in this season of life. All right, I'll get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Cristobal Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeshirt Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.